Hello and welcome to the Lib Dem podcast. Thank you for joining us. It has been a couple of weeks since our last one, so we're very grateful for you listening and watching to this podcast. We have a couple of announcements before we get into the podcast, though. Firstly, some wonderful news that Laura Gordon, one of our regulars here, has given birth to her lovely baby daughter. There's no name yet, and she hasn't gone for pod, so this is very disappointing so far. Um, but, you no, know, congratulations to Laura, baby, and her doing very well, and the Lib Dems have a new member, which is always, which is always great. Uh, and But in sad news from the Northwest in particular, we have, just yesterday we heard of the death of Lord Tony Greaves, uh, who, have, like many people, I've had many an argument with Lord Greaves over the years, but what was never in doubt was his commitment to localism and liberalism. And uh, the, the best story I've got of Tony Greaves was when he was having a, a debate with a member from another local party in Lancashire, and this other member said, well, why should I listen to you? And Tony Greaves just said, I win elections and you don't. Uh, and that was kind of the way Tony did things, but uh, a, a very sad loss. Um, but with the podcast, we have got a fantastic uh, set of people with us. We have Lisa Smart. Hi, Lisa. Hi, John. Uh, back again, we've, in, we've included him back on the pod. We have David McKenzie, who's fighting in the Hollywood elections in Glasgow, Kelvin. Hi, David. Hello. And I think now Simon is pretty much now a, a full-time regular on the podcast. We have Simon Lapori, who is now the Greater Manchester mayoral candidate for the Lib Dems. Hi, Simon. Hi, John. Right, so this episode, we're going to touch on all sorts of things. We've got, obviously, we'll have a little touch on uh, the conference and the latest campaigning. We are filming this on the Thursday, no, sorry, Wednesday, if I can get my days right, and nomination papers out very soon, so the election period starts in earnest very quickly. Uh, we're going to talk about the SNP, what's going on up there, and David's take on that. We're going to talk about the police protests all the stuff with the police and crime bill as well. And we're also going to talk a little bit about vaccines. So it is a full-on show. Uh, I hope you've all done your reading. Um, so where should we go? Should we start with the police and crime bill? Because that got a lot of Lib Dems head up and about the right to protest and where we are with it. So Anna, do you want to start with this, Simon? Because it's kind of part of your role's mail. What, what are your impressions of what happened with the government? Obviously, the Lib Dems voted against um, so do you want to just give uh, our readers a quick summary of what of where we are with it? Yeah, so uh, we voted against, and I'm so glad we did, and I'm sure we'll get onto this conversation later in regards to uh, stuff that's happened over the weekend at conference. Um, and it is odd because I got an email from a resident um, in Oldham um, thanking me for supporting the rejection of this bill and saying she'd swapped her vote to us because the Lib Dems were actually standing up and being the only visible party against it. And let's be clear, it's there are some parts of the bill that we would normally support. You know, it's just, it's that protest and that kettling of lockdown restrictions and lockdown restrictions on protest, on free movement, on gathering that have been put into this bill that we reject because it's an attack on our civil liberties. And <clears throat> coming out of this year, we have to be very careful as a country, I think, of, of not forgetting our, our roots as a country that does protest, that does stand up, that does argue, that does debate um, and does make their voice heard. Um, and I, I think we're this bill just puts a little bit of that in jeopardy. And it, I think one of the things is, it was it, is the claim in the bill that 
you're banned if you cause extreme annoyance or something like that. I mean, as a Lib Dem, part of my motto is I've been causing extreme annoyance publicly for a very long time. What yeah. about you, Lisa? How, how have you read it? I do know Alistair Carmichael's been very much vocal against this as our Home Affairs spokesman. Yeah, and I think a, a good appointment from Ed Davies' leader to put Alistair on the Home Affairs brief when he moved him, um, when he put Wendy Chamberlain in as Chief Whip. I think Alistair's uh, flourishing, I think, in his role. Um, and he's got a lot of material to go at, hasn't he? I think, yeah, you're right. Um, I'm extremely annoying as well. And I can't think of a single Lib Dem who is not. And I, there are a lot of people who think that that clause and that section of, of the, the wording is all to do with Steve Bray, who was the shouty uh, arch remainer who used to sit, uh, stand outside Parliament and shout uh, with a megaphone and try and disrupt uh, news broadcasts. And I think a lot of people think that's ex exactly there just about him to try and ban him. And I think... If we reflect on our history, as Simon has said, and you think about the suffragettes and the suffragists, and you think about how women got the right to vote, and you think about how a number of our hard-fought freedoms were won, it was through protest, and it was through explain, showing the strength of feeling and showing peacefully, some, hopefully, but sometimes not, what's wrong and what, what the people feel. And I think if you look at the way the police responded to some protests that they uh, talked about the Coronavirus Act having outlawed them. I think we see that uh, civil liberties are important, liberal voices are important, and the ability for people to gather peacefully is important. I suppose one of the things that uh, has come out, and David, I want, just from your point of view, I remember I was listening to uh, the Times podcast where they were talking about this because if you have a, a protest or a march or something that doesn't affect anyone it gets ignored so you have to be a bit annoying for people to to notice you so how can we possibly but i mean i mean danny finkelstein was on that podcast as well saying you know there are rules within protests as well like lisa's alluded to about making sure it doesn't violent and you know damaging property or things like that so how do you get that balance right? How do Lib Dems get that balance? Because there's lots of things we could protest about right now that this government is doing. Yeah, I think um, there's there's kind of a, a difference between sort of violent demonstration and sort of civil disobedience. Um, and to me, you know, civil disobedience is, for example, when you you can you can disrupt something in a manner that's not damaging or you know is inciting violence um you know i'm thinking about for instance uh, not that i sort of supported it but it got a lot of uh, a lot of airtime was the uh, some of the demonstrations for the climate change in london uh, you know people obviously uh, gluing themselves to to the dlr etc that got a lot of publicity for that movement Although to I electric think, buses as well yeah, which was yeah. a, a random to me thing. was completely the wrong idea to take but you know in fairness they didn't do anything violent they didn't attack anybody and it's still got quite a lot of coverage so and i mean if you look at i think in the in the history of protests most of the people who have actually changed things it's come around from civil disobedience you know i'm thinking of the the martin luther kings of this world you know refusing to move but not actually inciting violence i'm thinking of uh, you know gandhi etc people of that ilk and the things that they've achieved and um, but i think also you know if you look at the marches for Europe or the marches against the Iraq war, the sheer volume and number of people that got coverage. So if you, if you have an issue that people feel very, very strongly about, I think it's very difficult for the media to actually 
not cover these issues and not cover the, the feelings of people within. And I wonder if it, if Lib Dems are, and this is an open question for anyone who wants to take it, I'm more concerned, I, I've had it within my own group as well, well, the Tories are just going to take over, they're going to make voting harder by bringing voter ID. There's a kind of, of this is inevitable, they're trying to make protests more difficult. They're trying to, you know, silence the BBC. They're trying to do stuff. And actually, Lib Dems, from my point of view, have got to realise, well, none of this stuff's inevitable. If you fight for it, we can stop it or we can reverse it. Um, and a bit, and I go back to, you know, the poll tax. It was the Ribble Valley by-election here in Lancashire that killed it because the Tories thought, hang on, if we go ahead with this, then we are going to lose more seats. And surely that's the point of a political party, is that to put pressure in as many ways as we can to affect the change we want to see, whether in power or out. Yeah, and I think if, if nothing else, you go down swinging, right? So <laughs> the, the Tories have got an 80-seat majority. Of course they're going to try and make it harder for people to vote who they don't want to vote. Of course they're going to redraw the boundaries to make it easier for them to win. Of course they're going to make protest uh, more difficult to do. Of course, of course, of course. And I think some people who seem shocked that a Conservative Party with an 80 seat majority is trying to make things more difficult for people who they disagree with. I'm, you know, forgive me if, I, if I'm not that surprised. I think it, um, for me, it's really useful and uh, helpful to be reminded sometimes that the Tories are not the good guys and that they need to be opposed and a strong opposition is really important. And it's also a good reminder for me that as a Liberal, I'm on the right team. And so when I hear Liberal Democrats talking about civil liberties and the right to protest, um, and the importance of the right to protest, it's, it's really, it's very settling for me to know, yep, I'm on the right team. These guys feel the same way that I feel and we've got each other's backs. So I think it can feel quite lonely sometimes when you're the uh, lone voice of Liberalism in certain groups, areas, what have you. But but being part of something bigger, being part of the Lib Dems is, is settling and grounding and healthy. I think in lots just of to add, just to add on to Lisa, I think we saw it in the eighties. I mean, the eighties for whatever you believe in it, um, right or wrong, um, the Conservatives limited the rights of unions, shut them out of future prosperity. Um, you know, limited their decision making. Limited their involvement in politics and local politics. Is was that right or wrong? But now we're seeing the next phase of that attack, and it's like, how do we limit society? And I think the coronavirus and the lockdowns has been a um, a convenient cover for a lot of the decisions made and choices, because that's what they are. They're choices that this government are making. Um, yeah. So how do we fight that? How, how do we, because, you know, civil liberties <coughs> is never going to be a massive issue. We, I mean, I, for most people, I mean, I joined the Lib Dems in the aftermath of Iraq and 90 days without, uh, 90 days attention without trial, etc. Um, but it is a, it's probably, uh, maybe I'm being a bit unfair, but it tends to be only politically wonky people that probably care much about civil liberties. Or am I doing a disservice, David? Um, maybe I'd say slightly a disservice. I mean, I think um, when we were talking there about inevitabilities in terms of civil liberties, you know, um, I, I think back to the Lib Dems putting a lot of pressure on ID cards being introduced mm -hmm. um, under under the new Labour government. Now, there was really no reason why new Labour couldn't push that through if they had have wanted to. <coughs> they had an overall majority, but it was the 
I think the general public looked at this and went, oh, I have some real concerns about why you're wanting to track this stuff. I think it's it's actually, it's been able to articulate to the general public why a lot of these things are concerning. Now, I would caveat that with saying the protests that happened in Bristol at the weekend, I think, did not go a long way to help supporting um, people who are campaigning against this uh, this legislation. Um, and unfortunately, as, as always seems to happen, a small minority absolutely spoil it for the vast majority of people who are law-abiding and are simply protesting because of their right for peaceful protest. Um, so there's difficulties in that regard. But I think when you when you point out to people that we live in a absolutely a democratic country, you're right to go and stand at the gates of parliament and shout if you want about the things that you are you know most inclined to do so. It's absolutely your right. And there's, there's a large, there's in the very recent past, there's a lot of things that have happened that wouldn't probably not be allowed under this current legislation. I'm thinking of people who went to parliament and protest for the leave vote and, and the same as well for people who wanted to remain. These things could have very quickly been shut down. And I think when you equate that to people, they, they will probably sit up and go, I have some real concerns about this. I think just on Bristol, laws already are in place to, to state fairly clearly that it's illegal to set fire to police vans and things. So um, I agree strongly with David that people who were uh, protesting uh, violently in Bristol over the weekend did not help the cause they claimed to be helping. Hello, John from the Lib Dem podcast here. We are delighted to say that this episode is sponsored by Prater Rains. Now more than ever, you need a professional-looking online presence and website. Prater Reigns have been helping Liberal Democrat campaigns succeed for 18 years. Their Lib Dem Foci package combines a website, social media and email system to help Lib Dems win. You'll receive great support from real people, fair pricing and a huge range of features to choose from. Prater Reigns are already the bespoke developers for Lighthouse, Lib Dem Draw Online and the LD Directory. They combine a talented system design with an unrivaled understanding of our party, our data and our systems. To find out more, check out the Praetorains website at praetorains.co.uk slash liberal-democrats. This podcast has been sponsored by the Katora Coffee Club, the UK's most environmentally friendly coffee club. There are over 400 independent roasters in the UK, each one crafting coffee in their own unique style. Katora Coffee Club works with some of the best to take you on a voyage of coffee discovery. The Katora Coffee Club delivers ethically sourced and independently roast coffee directly to your door. Each month you'll receive between two and four bags of coffee and their monthly extract magazine. Even better for Lib Dem podcast listeners, use the code BETTERCOFFEE to save 5% on subscriptions and gift boxes for a limited time only. All Katora Coffee Club boxes are carbon negative and offset the CO2. So why not do some good, enjoy some great coffee and check out the website www.katoracoffeeclub.com. Now, back to the podcast. Speaking about um, people fighting, that's a perfect uh, segue to go up to the SNP, uh, who seem determined to, uh, having been Teflon-like in their kind of uh, ability to not get criticism stuck to them, uh, seem to have decided that they thought they'll just punch each other out. Uh, now, David, obviously you're standing to try and be in Holyrood uh, this this May. So what's your take on it? I mean, I mean, clearly there's been a drop in support for the SNP because of this. Voters don't like divided parties. But, 
I mean, is this now the end of it? Obviously, the vote of no confidence in Nicola Sturgeon put forward by the Tories was not supported by Labour or the Lib Dems who abstained. Um, so she, she, which was, I think was probably a tactical mistake from the Tories because they weren't going to get it through anyway. So it now makes like Nicola's had a little bit of a victory in that sense. But what's your take on it, David? Well, I think um, I absolutely want to echo the statements that really I think were made by both Willie Rennie and Anna Sauer yesterday in the Scottish Parliament, which was nobody's come out of this situation winning. And, and really the... <laughs> A lot of emphasis has been put by the media, etc., on SNP infighting, when really, in reality, we should be focusing on the fact that the Scottish government let down two women who'd brought forward uh, allegations and, and that it had been completely pushed aside for a view of infighting. Um, the, I think you know, that it's, it's been damaging for Nicola Sturgeon, and I don't think anybody comes out of a situation like that unscathed. She's kept her position... The committee's found one way, the independent report's found another. Um, obviously, the independent report from James Hamilton said it's, it's down to the committee to decide if the First Minister misled Parliament, and they believe she has. But obviously, I do think that it was slightly hypocritical of the Conservatives to bring forward a vote of no confidence on you know, the First Minister misleading Parliament when their own Prime Minister, their own Home Secretary, and other members of Cabinet have been found to have done exactly the same in Westminster and have not made any effort to step down either. So I don't think they're really in the moral position to start pointing fingers at people who uh, are, are potentially uh, not being truthful. And I, I caveat that by saying potentially, <laughs> which is the key <laughs> word here. Um, so the I think a lot of people are going to be looking at this come May time and they're going to say, you, you always see it, look, parties that have been in power for a long time with big personalities, splits happen. But the SNP have been quite successful for a number of years, have been able to contain that, even though they have one end goal. The majority of people who are within the SNP have very different views on what they think an independent Scotland should actually look like. You have some people, and I think the, the biggest vote that probably proved that a few years back was the gay marriage legislation. You know, you had people who were within the SNP who are, are very left-wing, but and you also have people who on uh, social issues are extremely right-wing. Um, you know, I'm thinking of uh, the, sorry, his name's gone right out of my head, but the, the bus tycoon in Scotland who was completely funding uh, anti-gay marriage legislation. Um, so there's people within that party with extremely differing viewpoints, and it'll be interesting to see how they try and hold that all together over the next few months. Is it, is it a time, I wonder, Simon, because obviously you're taking on Andy Burnham, a very prominent mm. figure in, in, in British politics. And there's, is there a point now where politicians that will never now fall on their sword? Because you think, like David's just alluded to some of the examples in Westminster. This, and obviously we saw it across the pond in, in America, where it seems to be if you just ride out the controversy, sometimes just denying it even exists, even when it's blatantly obvious it does, the, the, the narrative moves on and you survive rather than actually doing the honourable thing. Yeah, I, I think that's that's an effect of the past 20 years in politics. I don't think that's new. I think that's just happened. Um, and new Labour, um, the way it was managed, helped facilitate that. Um, you know, you can have an affair now and you won't be judged for it. You can have a, a child out of wedlock as a politician and not be judged for it. And that's a good thing, by the way. I'm not saying it's not a good thing, um, but it's permeated into other aspects of politics. And I think I was having this conversation over the weekend, actually. It, since 2008, 
the public have an image of politicians at every level. You're all as bad as one another. You're all in it for the money. You, you don't care about anything. You just want to get yourself on telly and, and, um, and get, you, get yourself heard. And that's exacerbated the, um, the cult of personality around certain politicians that so they become Teflon-like. And I think Andy Burnham is definitely an example of that, Nicola Sturgeon. And I think Nicola Sturgeon has the added benefit of she is a regional politician looking out over, or in terms of Scotland, that is a nation. Um, uh, I saw Lisa's look there. But she's doing exactly what Andy's done over the lockdown. She's that personality in an area of the country that is looking out over the rest of the country saying you will never have a chance to judge me electorally so I can stand tall and say and do what I want and blame it all on Westminster or blame it all on my enemies um yeah and I think that's that's come from devolution and it's something we will have to get used to and learn how to manage um over the next few years and do you think, Lisa, I'm interested in this point, do you think, as I, I generally think Lib Dems are good, honest, very moral people, that sometimes we're too keen to eat our own? You know, that we... Well, you I know, mean, don't get me wrong, John, we've got some wrong-ins. Every group of people yeah, have some yeah. wrong-ins. But I think, on the whole, uh, Lib Dems far too easily believe the bad stuff our opposition writes about us, and they're far too... Uh, there's not quite as much fight as I would like to see in lots of them when it comes to the opposition attacking us. You know, somebody says, oh, we do, somebody put a comment on Facebook that they didn't like my leaflets, so I shouldn't do any more leaflets. And I just, I do wish there was a bit more fight in some of our team. And that was one of the recommendations. It wasn't quite worded like that from the Thornhill Review, which looked at the 2019 general election. It said the Lib Dems are, Lib Dem members are far too easily brought into having a go at one another rather than fighting the opposition. Yeah. I think just picking up on something Simon had said about everybody thinks politicians are in it for themselves and a bunch of Romans and up to no good. I think that's true to a point. If you look, the research is really interesting that people will actually often defend their own. So if they know their own politician, their own MP, councillor, whoever, they'll say, oh, they're all a bunch of wrongings, but actually so-and-so gets stuff done. You know, John sorted my crossing out or um, helped me with some casework to do with my child's school, whatever it is. If they know you, they're more likely to think you're not a wrong and that you're you're one of them. So and, the that, and that's the power of... And that's the power of canvassing, isn't it? This is something we've always said when we talk about the effectiveness of doorstep canvassing, not only because you're able to get data or thing, that if an opposition is... And I, the Tories have put out a little bit of an attack leaflet about me for my county seat, saying I just turn up once in a blue moon. Well, the fact is that people know I've done 30-odd thousand odd canvas attempts in the last uh, you know eight years. So they know that's not... And all those people I spoke to me said, you're saying all this stuff about John, I've met John. I've spoke to him four times in the last year. Where have you been? You know, that, and I think that's, it's a way of insulating yourself, isn't it, about that? And that's why, um, but actually, you know, let's take it from there, actually. Let's go on to the campaign side of it, because actually, door, I, I will be honest, I've really enjoyed being back on the doors. I don't know if it says something about me, but actually, I feel my mental health has actually gone up a lot more. Just speaking to people, 
and I get the feeling because I've had probably had longer conversations than normal on the door that some people are glad just to have a ch- someone come round and chat to them as well. So how how are you guys all feeling about the campaign at the moment? So shall I go first because I'm vigorously nodding alongside John. So I agree with you, John. So as an enormous extrovert, uh, I practically ran out of the door on the first day we were allowed to canvas again. And it was great. I did some in my ward and I've done the two neighbouring wards so far in the last week or so. And it's been really good. People have been really happy to speak to anybody. I think you're right. There are lots of people who are just craving human contacts in a conversation. But it's been a really positive response on the doorstep. It's been, you know, thank you for keeping in touch throughout lockdown. Thank you for doing this. You've got this fixed. Let's talk about it. And it's been really, really, really positive. I agree with you. In terms of the impact on my mental health, it's been a real positive. And if people haven't yet gone out and knocked on doors since the 8th of March, I would strongly strongly encourage you to do so. It's been really positive. And Simon, as a as an organizer, I want to bridge you a question because what we're I think everybody knows who's listened to us, we do a lot of uh, advice about how to campaign, what to campaign. And so everyone I think should be aware that if you're not concentrating on postal voters, please do. Um, you know, because it's going to be a key demographic in the people that actually turn out. But I'm conscious because we've got limited time. This whole, we haven't had a long campaign. It's been truncated down. So from your point of view, Simon, is it better to concentrate in areas within your ward that you are weakest? So, you know, I've got five sections to my ward. I know one's slightly more Tory leaning than the other. Do I concentrate on that ward or concentrate on making sure my vote in all the other areas goes out? So um, this is going to get really geeky, so I do apologise. No, um, I never apologise. Yeah. I, um, if you've got someone that's good at operating Connect, uh, what we've done, uh, what, we, what I've sorted out with everyone across Trafford and, and Warrington, um, you have your supporter pool, you've got your switch pool, you've got your squeeze pool, and then add in your squeeze plus and your unknowns. And that's your canvas pool. And just work through it. You can prioritize out of them, you can prioritize the postal votes first and then go back and do the ballot boxes. Um, but what we're finding is when we're going down the street, say we get halfway down it and we stop for the night and then come back the next day, the first few five doors that we knock on after what we did the previous day. Oh, you were around yesterday. My neighbour told me, don't worry, I'm voting for... They know we're coming and they're already supporting us. And these are no datas um, because we've been seen and because the neighbours are all talking. And that's another fact that everyone needs to be aware of coming out of lockdown. <clears throat> communities are, I would say, at their closest they have been um, in my now 40 years of life. Um, I think we've, we had that drive away from communities and communities just being divided and silent for so long. They've now come so close together that neighbours know each other again and they're talking to one another again. Um, so there is a lot more word of mouth. But, um, but yeah, that's the pool we're using and we're just working through the wards as quickly and as efficiently as we can. Um, trying to speak to as many people um, and trying to, you know, get that odd bit of data. But we already, you know, if you've already got 
you're winning mark in the pools you've got sorry this is going on um <laughs> if you've already got your winning mark in your data you've got say you you need 1500 to win and you've already got say two and a half thousand in your switch squeeze and support then yes adding in the squeeze plus and the unknowns just adds to it and helps you build that shot of worth that that knock-up list for post-vote weekend and ballot box day. I want to give a, a different suggestion that may or may not be right, which is to see how it's going. So we've got a mixture of wards where I am, where somewhere we had really good majorities last time, somewhere it's much closer, somewhere we're hoping to win. And so what we wanted to do was take the temperature of those places where last time we had really healthy majorities to see has it moved. Yeah. So are things different? Have, has there been a load of opposition activity we haven't seen of all the people who voted for us now change and the haters now so we've gone and done uh, a sample of 50 contacts 50 bits of voter id in each polling district you can run a formula on it to see are you winning or not if you are healthily move on to somewhere else yeah. so you concentrate your efforts on the places where it can make the most difference we've got quite a lot of wards in stockport where we're fighting to win or fighting to hold and so we need to target effectively so that's what we've been doing seeing how it's going if it's going well move somewhere else no that's the caveat sorry it's you if you've got like a 2000 vote majority in a ward you you sample it you you do what i'm saying in wards where you've got 200 300 vote majorities or you're fighting to win sorry yeah. and and I mean, you've talked about the opposition. So, I mean, I'm not seeing an awful lot. I mean, like I so said, the Tories have put out one leaflet in my county seat, but actually Labour are very quiet. They're, we're seeing, I mean, they are doing stuff on Facebook and online, but not not loads. I've got to say, it's. I'm not, I, I do get a weird feeling that I wonder if both Labour and the Tories, I don't know, and David, you can come in about the SNP, whether they are struggling to get their troops out uh, you know, because if you spend a whole year saying, or particularly since uh, New Year saying, no, you absolutely shouldn't go out leafleting, and if you're a volunteer leafleter, you are some sort of evil, that might put you in a slight disadvantage when you're trying to get people to actually go out and do leaflets. So what what, what are we thinking about uh, the opposition? Because I'm not seeing much. I mean, sorry, can I just come in? There's yeah. The um, Keir Starmer's had his, had his honeymoon, and is turned into a bit of a, a damp squib, mm -hmm. dare I say it, um, and he's not enthralling the troops. So it's not so much you've told them to stay home, it's the fact that a lot of them are like, what's the point? Um, but even Labour voters, I mean, where you're Tory facing and we're knocking on Labour doors and talking to them, they're like, yeah, I, I was going to vote Labour, but... Yeah, they're so soft. They're so amenable to our message. So, and, and weirdly enough, I've spotted because I, in one patch of my county seat, um, there's lots of suburban Labour kind of members who hated Jeremy Corbyn. Really didn't like him during the Jeremy Corbyn years. It was so easy to squeeze them and say, actually, duh, you know, just based on our community work, the fact that Labour a third, all the usual kind of stuff that Lib Dems do. Um, and I had a bit of concern before going out canvassing, have they gone back? Will they go back and then cost me my seat because Labour, you know, increase their vote by 10% and I, and I miss out? I will say that I'm seeing zero sign of that at all. Uh, I think Labour are probably in for a very disappointing May unless something drastically changes. 
Well, they've Lisa. been managing expectations with some vigor, haven't they? I think yeah. they've been they've been trying to dampen down any expectations of anything. And if you think about where we are in the cycle, it's the counties, which is not a historic area of strength for Labour. It's the metro mayors, where you know, they they will be expected to win a chunk of those. There's really only two, probably, where it's it's not entirely clear who's going to win. Um, I think. Uh, the rules are different in Scotland, aren't they, David? You can't knock on doors yet, but you can yep. deliver. I think deliver no door knocking. Yeah, I think remembering how Labour operate, though, they can only hunt in packs. You only yeah. see Labour canvassing in, in a massive pack of people, and you, that's against the law until Monday in England. And so that it, things might change. We have seen some leafleting from Labour and the Tories in my patch, and I know in other places they have, but not as much as us, which is, and long may that continue. And it is interesting. I, I want to just point out what Lisa said is very true about counties not being Labour's strong point. But we should point out, 2017 counties, the Tories were 40 points ahead in the polls with Theresa May flying high. They won in areas they would never expect to win, the Tories, uh, four years ago. So, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky that Lancashire is one of the most marginal counties, that the Tories only need to lose six seats. And some of those majorities they have, I mean, in Rossendale, which is a part of East Lancashire, they've got the Tories won three seats by less than 100 votes over Labour. Now, you, they, now that for me, I mean, I'm not, that is not a strong area for the Lib Dems. If the Tories keep those seats, then Labour's in real trouble, real, real trouble. But okay, we'll, talk, we'll go on to the, the national picture in Scotland, if that's all right, David. I mean, how, yeah. how do you feel the SNP are doing? Obviously, there's a, a lot of... There's that kind of anyone but the SNP sentiment seems to be coming across the other parties. Is that true? Um, I, I think there's a realisation from the general public in Scotland, people who don't want, to, people who are looking and saying, actually, I want to put the coronavirus ahead of another independence referendum. I think people are now looking and going, I'm probably going to have to vote tactically if I want to get someone other than the SNP. I wouldn't say the parties are pushing that, and I, I wouldn't expect them to. I mean, you, <laughs> I think you lose yeah. a lot of uh, credibility when you say don't vote for me, vote for someone else. Um, but obviously, I mean, I think you might have seen there's now this um, George Galloway outfit, Alliance for Unity or, or All for mm -hmm. Unity, um, who are, are standing <laughs> in Scotland, and they are actively pushing people to tactically vote. Didn't I've somehow got... Yes, I've somehow got George's endorsement, um, which is uh, which is uh, interesting because obviously he formerly was the MP for Glasgow Kelvin um, and uh, defeated Roy Jenkins. And my whole thing has been me sort of trying to tie the legacy of Roy Jenkins and Glasgow Hillhead. To, um, so it's it's a very convoluted convoluted piece, but um, yeah, I, I I think that there's going to be an interesting aspect here because. Um, the SNP obviously last time round didn't get a majority. They've been saying, give us a majority this time for a second independence referendum. The polls at the moment aren't showing that's going to be likely. Now, the, it looks though that the independent supporting parties, so SNP plus the Greens, will potentially get a majority in the Scottish Parliament. And they will probably use that as a as a whip to say, well, we need another independence referendum. But that's not the line the SNP have been pushing. They've been pushing, give us a majority as a mandate to have a second independence referendum. So I think come May, and actually the interesting piece as well is um, Labour have now leapfrogged the Tories in the polls in Scotland as potentially taking uh, second place again. So you could potentially see an Asawa back to being 
uh, leader of the opposition in the Scottish Parliament as opposed to uh, Douglas Ross, which would be an absolute uh, nightmare for the Tories in Scotland if uh, if they've appointed this new leader, Douglas Ross, to, to get them over the line and he, he actually drops them down in the polls. So I, I'm kind of interested to see how May goes and, and who's going to pick up seats where. And it looks quite interesting for the Lib Dems as well. It's um, Was that was that the dog? Is it, I, I've been seeing your dog as well in the background, John, getting comfy on the sofa. So. Yeah, I was going to say, mine's, no, there he is, he's woke up now. So. The cat's been sat in the window for so long, sulking while I've done this, and he's just stepped onto the table, and I was like, good away, good away, good away. And I was like, no, I'm leaving you. But um, it looks like uh, it looks like potentially the Lib Dems, etc. in Scotland will, will also pick up a few seats. Um, especially on the list, so it'll be interesting to see what the you know the composition of the Scottish Parliament is come May time. And, and it could be a, a strong, thriving group of, of Lib Dems could be the thing that holds our country together, though. And I don't think we, I don't think enough people, certainly south of the border, quite realise that because exactly yeah. as David has said, if there's a majority in favour of a second independence referendum in the new Parliament they'll push for that. If the Lib Dems hold the balance of power, that isn't something we would support because we need to put recovery first. So I think a strong thriving group of spiky MS, Lib Dem MSPs could be what holds our nation together. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, think it's... Sorry, David, I was just going to ask, is, is there ever a possibility in some kind of bizarro world where you get Labour and the Conservatives forming a coalition to oust the... Um, to oust the SNP. Uh, SNP. So I would say, so, uh, well, I'll, I'll say two things. So um, it might not be known to everybody on this podcast, but I used to be in the Labour Party. So, um, and obviously my, my, my father was in the Labour Party and is, <laughs> is actually relatively good friends with Anasawa. Um, I, I could probably rule out right now that Anasawa would ever entertain any sort of coalition with the Conservatives. Um, obviously, you know, the interesting thing was uh, Labour and the Lib Dems used to be in quite a successful coalition in the Scottish Parliament previously, and it, and it worked quite well. Um, and uh, But I, I don't know if we would have the numbers in that regard. Um, I think we'll probably get to the point where it will be a hung Parliament, and it will just it will be on the basis of where the Scottish Greens and where the Scottish Lib Dems lie in terms of numbers. That would be the tipping point, really. So... And I Please think vote for me, Glasgow. Ha- I could be the tipping point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what, I think whatever the results will be, the SNP will spin it. You know, us politicians being as we are, the, the SNP will spin it to say, well, yes, but we got the most votes. Or, yeah, oh, yes, or something. Or, 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 or some way they will say, you know, this gives us a mandate to push for a second referendum. But it'll be interesting to see, like you said, it isn't like say United and SNP about when they should push for that referendum. There are other people in there who think actually if we push it now, you might put it off for a very long time. Um, but let's just leave Scotland for a second and go to the EU. Now, there has been a lot of jingoistic and nationalistic kind of press about vaccines. The EU did this, the EU did that. Now, I will say I think a vast majority of people are getting wrapped up in this when actually most of it is to do with contract law, about orders not being fulfilled and things, and and then whether it's the EU or the UK trying to defend those orders or get those orders first. It was one thing that really is interesting to point out is that the EU actually ordered theirs before Britain, but haven't had theirs actually been received. 
But what is can be absolutely clear, and I do think some Lib Dems need to get this, you can be vehemently against Brexit, be very pro-European, and still think the EU has balls this up. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Mm. Um, and, and I think some Lib Dems are going to head, well, we can't say anything bad about the EU. When actually that's not true. No institution is perfect. Mm. Um, but who wants to go on and what their views on this vaccine kind of debate? Go on, David. Well, can I can I give a quick thought? So it's it, I absolutely agree with you, John. I think if you if you constantly take the view that the EU can do no wrong, I think you do any you do a, a monumental amount of harm to any future conversation about should we rejoin Europe. Um, I I am um, I, I once stood up. I, I had to debate. Kelvin Hopkins, former Luton MP, when I was in the Labour Party about why I felt people in Reading, where I lived at the time, should should vote to remain. And one of the things I, I was at great pains to, to get across to the audience was, I am not saying the European Union is perfect. Far from it. I'm saying I want to stay in. I want to reform it. I want to change it because I believe the the sum of all its parts is better than leaving, but there's parts that need to be fundamentally changed. But look, there's... um. I think you're absolutely right about the press as well. There's a sort of nationalistic view of like, let's just criticise the EU and not put any any criticisms towards our own government. And when I was, and I'm sure we'll get on to Lib Dem conference, but um, I, you know, I, I spoke about the fact that our own national government seems quite willing to throw Northern Ireland under the bus, um, and if, if you know, threatened several times to invoke Article 16. But then when the European Union threatened to invoke Article 16, there was uproar and people were saying, oh God, how can you do this? Whereas Boris Johnson stood at the dispatch box twice and said, I will invoke Article 16 if I need to. So it seems to me there's sort of this, let's just lump all the blame on the European Union because it's an easy target right now and it probably actually helps the government in their messaging. Um, and I think, but you're right, I think some Lib Dems need to get on the on the point here that you cannot just say it's perfect and there's no problems with it. And I do think some of the EU leaders need to probably think about their actions and also their words in, in regards to this. And I think um, people just need to be a bit more sensible, get around the table, get it sorted, because there's there's a pandemic going on, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a Scottish friend that used, used to use the phrase when people were getting a bit leery, said, you've got to throttle back. And I think that is what I think some of the politicians on both sides do. So, Simon, what are your views on this? Yeah, well, I, I pretty much agree with David. And um, I, I remember the referendum and, and it was a case of, is the EU perfect? No, but we can be in to change it and, and reform it and change it to how we want it to be. And we can do that inside the EU. We're now outside the EU. The fact that they sign contracts with AstraZeneca and as you're alluding to, there are issues with that. But Britain we're just being that nationalistic and, and that populism and that nationalism is being stoked every day. I mean, we just spoke briefly about Northern Ireland. I mean, my, my partner's from Northern Ireland and his uh, brother and his parents are still over there. Um, prices have gone up um, quite significantly on a few products. Mm. Um, it, it is worrying and it's, it's annoying um, and supply is down on a few things. These things aren't in the newspapers every day. Um, so I think, you know, Northern Ireland has been thrown under the bus. And what's worrying is it will be used as that political football with the EU for the next few years. Article 16 this, Article 16 that, you know, for whatever side, for both sides, and I'm not romanticising the EU on this, 
Um, and it is, it's worrying because I think it, it just pushes it closer to that precipice and what will be the spark that lights the flame um, in Northern Ireland quite worryingly um, from that. But John's just left us. The, the issue with the vaccines is that people take them when they're offered them. And I think the UK mm. has had a, a good and impressive vaccination rollout program. We've yeah. had the news this week that over 50% of adults have had their first jab. <coughs> I've done some volunteering at one of the vaccine clinics near me and people have been skipping into the vaccine clinic to get their first jab. And I think that's a great, that's a really good thing that the UK has achieved. I think it's also a testament to when you let local teams roll out the vaccine programme, you can see how they know the right community centre to use or the right space to use and the right team and how to get to volunteers. It's a real credit to them. One of the things that I think is really troubling is all of this press around the vaccines just makes people more hesitant to take it when they're offered it. And if you look at the, there was a really interesting piece of data out looking at vaccine hesitancy rates in different EU countries. We have the lowest vaccine hesitancy rate pretty much in the UK. And the other, or some of our neighboring countries, so France, Germany, Spain, have very, very different rates, like much lower vaccine acceptance rates in Spain. A very long standing friend of mine, we went to play group together, so preschool. So we've been friends a long time, has lived in Spain for the last 20 years. Very bright person, science A-levels, quite vaccine resistant, um, just having lived in, in Spain for a while, just wasn't sure she was going to get it. Not sure her kids should have vaccines. You, and I think it's, just, it's really, it's worrying that this, the press around the vaccination rollout has such an impact on people when we need people to take it, that it works, it's effective, it's safe. We need people to have it. Sorry, Lisa. Do you um, do you think that that's that's more cultural? Because the, um, across Europe, and um, you know, we see it uh, across other communities, but um, there's that cultural distrust of things. In um, you know, so you're putting an injection in someone's arm, and they're like, "What is this going to do to me?" Is, is this government trying, not in conspiracy tinfoil hat wearing, but what are you trying to control? What are you trying to do? And it is a, an historical legacy of things that have happened in Europe over the past 100, 200 years. I think it's a mixture of things, Simon, absolutely. I think that different nations, different cultures, different peoples have different approaches to things and, and a different relationship with government. I do, the, the point I was trying to make there was about the press reports and about people talking about safety, e efficacy, links with other things and the impact that that has on different people. So if you look at the way vaccine rounds are reported in different countries, you can see how that it's correlated with vaccine hesitancy rates um, unhelpfully. Mm. Yeah, so, sorry about that. I had an Amazon <laughs> delivery turn up, <laughs> so so uh, for I had to for those of you watching, I had to nip off the podcast, and then I had to get the dog away because he decided to sit in a not particularly very flattering way and was heavy breathing down <laughs> me. So these are the joys of uh, of animals and podcasts. Um, but no, I mean it, it is really interesting. I mean, you're right about the vaccine hesitancy uh, in, but I mean one of the concerns I have is that, and I'm worried the government will, will repeat its mistakes because they've gone so big on, look how good we're doing, 
that if a new variant comes from the EU or or, or is, becomes prevalent in the EU, then that then we have to be prepared to accept that we might this might not be over. You know, there's a lot of people who think, and I, I when I'm canvassing now, people are saying, you know, normality is around the corner. Well, it might not be. Mm-hmm. You know, the, and the worry when you have a large-scale further outbreak or a third wave, whatever you want to call it, is that the increase is the chance of a variant that might be more um, resilient to a vaccine, which is the really worrying part, or might be more virulent to people who have yet had the vaccine. So it could target younger people, it could, or or whatever. Um, And so, but I have a distinct feeling that the Tories won't do anything now. I think they think we're, we're, we're out of this lockdown or they'll lose a whole chunk of their vote. Is that what everyone else thinks? Or Well, I think there's there's kind of a couple of things to unpick there, John. So the, um, you know, I do think we have to be prepared that even once vaccination has been done en masse, you know, this might not be the end of COVID-19 as a whole. Uh, if you look at, you know, Spanish influenza has never went away. We've just become to a certain level resistant to it. But as we always see, you know, people have flu vaccines yearly because there are still dangerous strains of the flu out there and it could become a situation where we potentially have to have a level of people who would be vulnerable vaccinated every year for potential new strains that would that would come up um i do think there's um the, the conservatives seem to want to paint this kind of rosy picture of like come june july time everything will be potentially back to normal and uh, restrictions will be out the door um you might not be able to go abroad but that's you know that's certainly around the corner as well um I had a lot of criticisms from the Conservative government when they said to people, Christmas won't be cancelled, Christmas is going to be absolutely fine and you can just get on with it. And then we saw what the result was after that because they didn't want to put the disappointment in people to say, you can't have this and this is where we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to all bind together here and try and get over this in, in a shorter term. So I think we're potentially opening ourselves up to something maybe damaging long term by, mm-hmm. by setting expectations with people that are not realistic and maybe not even safe in some regards but i agree with you it may be a case of they're saying we don't want to get hammered at the polls by by setting these long long expectations with people but then you have to put up you know what's more important you know sort of a competent government or winning elections um and and to me it always lies with competent government and making sure people are safe i'm not sure it does with the conservatives though at the moment that's 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 my concern simon can i yeah i Again, this was another conversation I had over the weekend. The worry is at the moment, and over the past few months we've seen this, it's that it has all become normalised. You actually look at this wave that we've just gone through. More people have been hospitalised. More people have died. We're at 126, 127,000 deaths um, linked to COVID. Um, and that's the population of Preston. Can I just put that in? in and, and I use that here. That's like yeah. the entire population of Preston being yeah. wiped out. And can you imagine any other situation, natural disaster, terrorist mm. attack, anything, where a whole city the size of Preston is wiped out and then people have a kind of, kind of, uh, well, you know, we're going yeah. to the end of it. And this is where people are at the moment. And, and it is, it's quite... I don't want to say shocking, and, and I should say shocking, but that shows the normalisation. It's not shocking because we've gone through it for a year, but it is shocking. It is. It should be alarming, and and people you know should be you know 
shocked and alarmed and still arguing about it. And I think because of all the buffoonery at the beginning and all of the, you know, you know, Labour keep banging on about the uh, test and trace system, 30 odd billion that's been spent. So do we. Everyone's like, yeah, we know. You know, it's they expect this from a Conservative government. They expect the failures. They expect the you know the the backhanders. I think, and and I think it's been normalised over the course of the past year, which is fairly worrying. I'm going to at least want to. I think, I think it's a coping mechanism. I think people's yeah. psychology. You can only be outraged for so long before we have a breakdown. Yeah. And I think the last year has <clears throat> strained pretty much everybody's mental health. And I can tell you, as a uh, as a counsellor with an inbox, you can see it in there a lot that things that a year ago wouldn't have stressed people out although it was a year ago yesterday as we're recording this that the lockdown came in um things a year ago that wouldn't have stressed people out that much are really 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 straining them at the moment I think we all have to cope and we just uh, as human beings we have to do the best we can to get through and so I think some of that I'm just going to put to one side the corruption. I'm just going to put to one side the incompetence. I'm just going to put to one side the late lockdowns and so on, because I need to have something to hope for. And so the roadmap giving me a path of when I can go, you know, see my mum for the first time in however long, I can go for a swim, I can have a cup of coffee outside my own house, I think is, is people are clinging on to that. So it's not that unusual, I don't think, psychologically, that people are not just constantly outraged and shouting on Twitter the whole time. Yeah. And I think that ends that section perfectly. Now, we're going to we'll very quickly end this episode on talking about Lib Dem Conference because it's just happened, the Spring Conference. I didn't attend it at all because I was very busy with work. But um, impressions, guys. Again, I assume the Autumn Conference was a fantastic success as an online uh, thing. I take it similarly, um, it, it went well. Yeah, I think I... So. Yeah, I went, I, I was in and out of it. I was doing some other things. But I attended a few debates. I think the people who had a really good conference were the young liberals. Uh, I think they had a number of absolutely cracking speakers. They put forward a couple of amendments that were successfully carried. And I think they should be very proud of themselves. They've got an exec at the moment who are organizing and delivering. So I think they are doing some good stuff. I think the other people who had a good conference and it's a shameless plug for the Northern Liberal Network here. Uh, we put forward two amendments, both of which carried with huge majorities, and I'm very pleased with that. But yeah, I think it's a success. And I, um, the question that was asked of Jeff Payne, who is the chair of the Federal Conference Committee, so the team in charge of putting on the conference, he was asked, are we going to be having hybrid conferences in future? Are we going to be going back to in-person conference in the autumn? He a decision will be made in the in the next week or two about whether we go for an in-person conference in the autumn. And there's a there's a big question mark about whether we can manage hybrid conferences, whether spring will automatically be online and how it's going to be. So I think there are still questions, but it, the model has been proven to be successful. Yes, I think it's worked very, very well. And the, the level of debate and the level of people that could attend as well as people, you know, I'm thinking that may not be able to actually get to to in-person conferences and being able to contribute and be a part of that. I know when I spoke on the European debate, there was um, 
some disabled speakers as well that I think access to to an in-person conference would have been very difficult for them because they would have to get their carer etc to come with them so it gave them an opportunity to speak and if we are going to be the party of carers as, as Ed is asking us to do um, you know allowing these sort of situations is, is, is really beneficial uh, I, there's been a couple of things that I've seen thrown out in terms of maybe having the autumn conference be in person and maybe making the spring conference to be the the online um, I do kind of agree with Lisa. I think it might be very difficult to try and manage a, a both an in-person and an online conference at the same time. Um, although I, I suppose Parliament's been able to do sort of some people in Parliament, some people speaking from from home. So there, there may be ways around that. But I did get the impression, you know, I've only been to one conference in person when I joined the party and every other conference I've subsequently been to has been online. And that's both Scottish Lib Dem conferences and, and national Lib Dem conferences. So it's, um, there I don't know how many people have actually used the networking uh, option and it'd be interesting to see if anybody has used that. I shied away from doing it. I sort of just attended the fringes because, do, do you ever remember there used to be that thing when I was younger called chat roulette? <laughs> you used to yeah. go on, yeah, and it would just connect yeah. you with somebody over the world. Um, I don't know if I feel as confident as I was when I was younger to just go on something and be connected to a random stranger. <laughs> Well, I, I, I did it in autumn. I, I called it the Lib Dem speed dating kind of thing. But actually, it was, it was quite fun, actually. And, I, you know, I just used it as a shameless attempt to plug the podcast for most of it. I mean, one thing about it this year, uh, this time, John, was you had the extend button. So if you actually started ah. a conversation with someone, oh, no. you could just keep extending. That. You might get stuck um, with some weird Lib Dem. So I don't no, know. well, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but I think my my takeaway from this conference in particular was it felt like we got back to basics with our values um, and what we stood up for. I mean, I spoke on Sunday morning uh, on one of the emergency debates, the NHS pay debate, and followed by the reopening of schools debate, followed by the right to protest debate. There was three emergency motions, all passed, but it just felt right talking about those three things and, and, and being passionate about those three things. And, you know, I think I joked to uh, my other half who was up, um, you know, if, if these don't pass by huge majorities, there's something wrong with our party. <laughs> they did, but it was... It felt like we just got back to that. Yes, this is where we should be. This is these are the things we need to talk about. These are the things we need to campaign on and protest about and shout about. Um, and that felt really good, uh, along with a whole host of other policies across the weekend. By the way, yeah, it, it is interesting. And, and we're going to finish the podcast now. But about we at the last podcast we did with me, uh, Hannah, and Laura. Um, we talked about the nurses' pay thing because that had literally just happened. And we we thought it was so tone-deaf from the Tories that they probably would change their mind because ultimately people tend to remember the final outcome rather yeah. than the actual process of how you got there. Um, but the fact they haven't, I, I think, is, is amazing to me. It's I mean, it's on all our leaflets. It's on everything. I mean, they couldn't have done... They couldn't have done it more cack-handedly, in, in my opinion, how they could have possibly handled it. John, let's remember that the NHS England has actually budgeted for yeah. 2.1%. You know, they, I was like, they, they've shot themselves in the foot for no reason. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it seems real. And it, it, it probably is about, and we discussed, again discussed it in the last episode, about if you were to give it to nurses, you have to give it to everyone else in the public sector. I think that is probably where mm. 
the and 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 Rishi is being conservative with a small C as well yeah. about uh, how much he spends now because he knows there's a, a tsunami arriving of pro- financial problems. But we are, we are, we are going to have more about budgets and particularly the impact of Brexit. It's too much for this episode because we are starting <laughs> to see some. I mean, we've seen some of the food wholesalers and uh, the exporters having absolutely massive hits and not just not just the you know fishermen cornwall and 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 the you know the shetland isles but actually you know cheese manufacturers in cheshire you know or wherever it is are now seeing wow this is really starting to hurt Mm. Uh, and actually and also the pandemic impact you know i i canvassed a resident just last night whose business has closed he was a he supplied the hospitality industry, in particular in Blackpool and places like that, his business has gone. That's it. He and so the this is the reality that is for hasn't quite hit. I don't think that this is going to be the what's going to happen to our high streets and our town centres is going to be massive in the months to come. And as always, the Lib Dem podcast will be there. That's a I think a perfect way for us to kind of go about this. Unless you guys have anything else you wish to mention. I, I wanted to make one one final point, John, before we finish up. Is um obviously yeah. you mentioned at the start of the podcast about the the sad passing of, of Lord Tony Greaves. Um and I actually just wanted to say uh I, I am literally only in the Liberal Democrats as a result of probably uh, Tony Greaves because when I was sort of wandering around politically homeless. Uh, Tony invited me into the into the Lords for a, a cup of tea and some lunch to talk about what my next plans were. And uh, he was very kind and generous in sending me after I'd left and had a chat with him. He sent me a copy of his book, The Merger, talking about when the SDP and the Liberals merged together. And he sent me a handwritten note as well saying, really lovely to chat to you. I hope you consider joining the party. We'd love to have you. And that really struck me as something that to, to kind of go in above and beyond to, to catch up with somebody that really had, you know, I meant nothing to the person who didn't know me from Adam, um, just kind of showed the, I think, the, the type of man he was, and I think he'll be sorely missed in the party as well. He will be. I think it would be entirely inappropriate, though, to only say very nice things about Tony. Um, <laughs> Tony was uh, a force of liberalism over absolute decades, and you can read about his role in the merger and his role in the party ever since, and lots of people have said that he was kind and warm and generous. He was also... Um, I had one of his colleagues in the Lords yesterday describe him to me as a cantankerous old bugger. And he absolutely was that, but he was our cantankerous old bugger. And mm. he fought for liberalism and he fought for the Liberals and then the Liberal Democrats for all of his adult life. And I think he will be very much missed, but he was a cantankerous old bugger. Yeah, one thing we, we noted last night, because I went into a local party executive last night. <laughs> um <laughs> Tony Greaves, Lord Greaves, um, was uh, an official paid agent for the Liberal Party many years ago. Uh, his first job was uh, Bowden and Tatton Liberals agent. Um, yeah, and so we noted that last night, um, and it was uh, it was as as Laura and and David said, there's two sides. There were two sides to him. I only had the pleasure of meeting him once. Um, and and he basically gave me uh, a lecture on uh, how to door knock on how to have a conversation with someone properly. Um, so, uh, but he was yeah, he is uh, many emails over the past few years with him. He's, he, yeah, I enjoyed his thoughts on many things. Yeah, I I, I, I completely echo Lisa's sentiments that I had to deal with uh, Tony when I was a Northwest agent for the for the Euros and. 
awkward sometimes is uh, the way he could be. But but as David also said, he was so generous with his time as well. And to be what, and we've talked about all sorts of things here from the merger. We, I even mentioned the Ribble uh, Valley by-election, which obviously he was instrumental in, be, in getting that one as well. Uh, and when Michael Carr won that seat, it's he was still up for election this year coming. You know, he never gave up on that local roots. And, and uh, but no, sorely missed. Uh, and I hope uh, wh- whoever's up there with him in the sky, him and Paddy Ashdown and Charles Kennedy are having a, a good old natter up there. But no, but no, farewell, Tony. But and on behalf of the podcast, obviously, we should just say to his, his wife and his and his family, um, our thoughts are with you um, and uh, do take care at this very difficult time. But um, that's it for the Lib Dem podcast uh, this this week. So thank you to David, to Simon and to Lisa. Um, you can follow them on social media. Do check out them, what they're up to. Uh, we'll have lots of updates through the campaign. I do. It might get a little bit more sparse because obviously we are in the middle of elections, but this might be our cathartic way of just saying, can you believe what the toys have done this week? Um, but you can follow everything to do with the Lib Dem podcast at Lib Dem Pod. You can watch us on Facebook and on YouTube, or you can listen to us in all the normal places you get your podcast. So thank you very much to you guys. Thank you very much to everyone that's listened. And we'll be back with another episode very soon. See you later. <laughs>